0: Let's all stand up and have a word of prayer. Father, we come to your presence this morning in the name of your son, Jesus, who gave his life for us upon the cross, taking upon himself all of our sins and our diseases. Lord Jesus, we honor you. We glorify you. And you said where two or three of us are gathered together in your name, you're there in the midst of them. So Lord, we acknowledge your presence in this place. We ask you to speak to us through your word and to touch us. And Lord, I ask you to heal those that are sick to miracles in this place this morning. And Lord, touch our hearts. And Lord, for everything you do, we covenant to give you all the glory, honor, and praise because you alone are worthy in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. My name is uh, Christopher Allen. I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. No, I'm not Amish. <laughs> I know I look a little bit Amish, but I am not. I'm a full-blooded Hashemite Arab. Now, that might scare some of you a bit more. But uh, I want to start by thanking you, Pastor John, for having me. It's been a real blessing, and uh, I'm really grateful to be here. Uh, I want to start by telling you a little bit about my day job, what I do for a living. See if we can roll that PowerPoint, so you can see some pictures. Uh, Dynamis World Ministries, that's the name of our ministry. We do gospel crusades, church planting, training pastors. Um, We have a Bible school. We have an orphanage, and I minister basically all over the world. But my main thrust is in Africa. I have my base in Zimbabwe. Is there anybody here from Zimbabwe? Okay. All right. I see a lot of African faces, but no Zimbabweans. Okay, praise God. Next picture is, uh, this is Beauty and the Beast, my wife and myself. Uh, my wife, Britta, she's from Sweden. How she ended up with me is another story. So, so the next one is, uh, this is a real live lion. The only thing fake about this picture is my smile. Everything else is real. It's a real lion. Alright, and the next picture, this is uh, Victoria Falls, one of the most spectacularly beautiful places on earth. And we, we see that bridge, that bridge was built by Queen Victoria over the gorge. That waterfall is over one mile long of unbroken waterfall, 390 feet high. That's the, that's the greatest waterfall in the world, greatest one single unbroken waterfall in the world. There's nothing like it. And uh, you see that bridge that spans the gorge? On the left, you have Zimbabwe. On the right, you have Zambia. And you've got two cities there. And in Z- on Zambia, you have the city of Livingston because this, uh, the f- this waterfall, the first, um, uh, the first European to see this waterfall was the missionary, David Livingston. And so, and there were statues of Livingston on both sides. And on the right-hand side is the city of Livingston, On the left-hand side is the city of Victoria Falls. And we have had gospel crusades on both sides of the falls. And the next picture is... uh, Next picture. Right. This is me preaching in Zambia in the town of Chavama. On this field, we have actually had uh, uh, 30,000 people baptized with the Holy Ghost at one time. And uh, this is... uh, And the next one is, this is also in Zambia. I believe this is Chipata in Zambia. This is the last night of our crusade in Chipata this past April. And the next one is, this is in uh, the city of, it is in the township of Chirimba in Malawi. Chirimba in Malawi. And the next one is, this is Lobengula, Zimbabwe. Now, these are not big cities, but... When everybody shows up, the crowd gets big, you know. So, so this is in Lobengula, Zimbabwe. And the next one is, this is also somewhere in Zambia. I believe this is in George in, Z- in Zambia. We were there last April. And the next one is, uh, this is in, uh, let's see, yeah, this is in Harare in Zimbabwe, the city of Harare in one of the townships uh, called Mbare. Mbare in Harare, in Zimbabwe. And the next one is, uh, this is, I believe this is also in Zimbabwe, I'm not sure. The next one is, uh, this is people getting baptized with the Holy Spirit in April, in, in George, in Zambia. All these people receiving the Holy Ghost. And the next one is, uh, let's see. Now, uh, if we pause here, we do 10 crusades in Africa every year. And in each crusade, we have between 100,000 to 150,000 people coming to the Lord. So in all, we see about about, uh, 1 million, 1.2 million people come to the Lord every year in Africa. Plus, uh, before every crusade, before every campaign, we do a three-week-long mobile Bible school, very intensive, in which we... We train the local churches how to follow up the new believers. And after the campaign, we have three weeks of follow-up uh, to bring in all the new converts into the churches. And it has worked well for us because we've seen a lot of church growth. The average church growth at the end of a crusade is each church working with us grows to about uh, about uh, three and a half times their size. Now, some grow less, some grow more, but that's just the average, you know. And we have, uh, we have a lot of churches who come together and work with us in these campaigns. Now, this is interesting. This is, I was there a few months ago. This is Sanghie Island in Indonesia. This place had never had a gospel crusade before. This is, when you go to the northernmost part of Indonesia, the northernmost island, and you take a ship and you sail towards the Philippines, and this island actually should be part of the Philippines. It's very close to the Philippines, but it belongs to Indonesia. So I went there. And uh, very, I mean, this is as far uh, off you can get. And uh, so we held a crusade there. And you see thousands of people showed up and people were saved. And we saw many people healed. And uh, I was bit, bit antsy about going there. Because, you know, I, you know, you go to these remote places. And I, I frankly, after doing this for 38 years, I don't like cockroaches and lizards and bugs. And, <laughs> and but... We stayed in the governor's mansion. The, 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 governor's, uh, the governor was at the dock standing there with a brass band playing for us. So I was shocked. I said, who is this brass band for? This is for you. So I said, wow, that's great. So the governor received us, and we stayed in the governor's mansion. It was air-conditioned, running water, hot and cold water. I said, why didn't we stay here longer? I like this. So we had a great time. So anyway, the next one is... Uh, uh, this is in Jakarta, Indonesia, people giving their lives to Jesus. And you know, as you know, the, uh, Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim country. And God has given us some open doors. So for, for the past, I started last year, I've been going to Indonesia on a regular basis. And we are seeing tons of people getting saved. And sometimes I'll preach for 13 hours. I'll start at 8 in the morning, finish at 10 at night, going from service to service. And they keep you busy. So it's good. So... The next picture is, uh, this is, yeah, this is in uh, in Lebanon, in Beirut. I go there every year. My, my grandmother was Lebanese. My grandfather was Jordanian. So I have a special place in my heart for these countries. And um, this is in Beirut, Lebanon. And the next one is, um, this is a Muslim family. Just look at them. Uh, you know, I mean, the, all these Muslims were sitting in the meeting and I was wondering why they were doing this, especially the real strong ones, you know, where the women dressed in their veils. And when I began to preach, they began to cry. And I gave the altar call. They came running to the front, all of them, to receive Jesus. And so, you see uh... this. Now, this is in Abu Dhabi, in the United Arab Emirates. I was there and did a campaign there in Abu Dhabi. And the next picture is... Uh, these are some Assemblies of God missionaries who work together with us. Now, the man in the middle, he's one of Nikki Cruz's best friends. He's 75 years old. And he's been in the ministry 50 years on the missions field for 47 years. He teaches in a Bible college, but every morning he goes out and witnesses to people on the streets. And he wins at least one or two souls every day. Wow. 75 years old. I mean... Uh, One of my heroes, Pastor Mike Santiago, an amazing man. Next one is, this is uh, this is from Mozambique. This little girl had never walked before. And now she's walking for the first time, holding her mother's hand. This is in Mozambique. And the next one is? Uh, this is a lady, uh, this is in Zambia. She was, she was actually born paralyzed and she had always been, see the ushers in the background holding up that cart, that box with wheels. She had been in that cart all her life. And, the, and she was in the crowd in that cart and suddenly the next thing, I see her standing right next to the cart. So I called her up and she said, God healed me and now I can walk for the first time. So she walked on the platform and... Uh, and the next one is next picture is uh, let's see, yeah this is this this uh, this man with the striped shirt. He he had six children and two of them, uh, little girls, twelve and six years old, were born deaf and mute. And he brought them to the crusade and God healed both of them. So they they both began to hear and to speak. So I asked him to bring them back the next day. So he came back the next evening. And I just want to check them. And now they were speaking even clearer. So we had this picture taken. And the brother, the, the white boy on the left, you know, he, 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 he pastors the biggest church in West Virginia. He's a Grammy winning songwriter and uh, uh, used to have his own singing group before he was pastoring. And he has a heart for Africa. So he comes, uh, he comes every year and teaches pastors. So I, I tell him, well, you raise money and to feed the pastors and I'll bring them in. So he does that. We have a great arrangement. So he, he pays to bring them in and to feed them and everything. And we bring them in, several hundred pastors, and he teaches them. So he was with me a few weeks ago in Zambia. The next one is, uh, this. now this is interesting. Six years ago, I was in the city of Chagutu in Zimbabwe. And this man came with his newborn son, newborn baby, a few months old. And the baby had a club foot. Now a club foot is when the foot is totally turned this way so that the sole is pointing upwards. And it was curled up like a ball. It actually looks like a club. And so he was crying. He says, Pastor, this is my newborn son, six months old. Can you pray? So I began to pray. And right there, God began to straighten his foot. So his foot was straightened. So six years later, I was back in Chagutu, so he comes. And I I remember his face from somewhere. He says, do you remember me? I said, "Uh, please remind me. He said, well, I'm the guy with the sun. Then I remembered him. And then he says, this is my boy. Look at his foot, took his shoe off. And his foot is perfectly normal. He had him running around. So I asked him. So I said, "So what are you doing these days?" He says, "Well, after God healed my son, I got saved, and now I'm pastoring a church." So he's he's now, uh, yeah. So he's now one of the local pastors in Chegutu. And the next one is uh, let's see. This now this is interesting. This is in Zomba in Malawi. Uh, Malawi was the first country I went to in Africa. And uh, over 20 years ago, I went to this town called Zomba. Zomba was the southernmost Muslim-majority town on the African continent. Majority of the people were Muslims. And I did a crusade right in the middle of the city. We rented the stadium, did a campaign, and we had huge numbers of people getting saved. There were many miracles. And uh, I took a young man who had just been fresh out of Bible school. He went to a friend's Bible school and I installed him as a pastor and we supported him financially uh, until he was on his own feet. And uh, today he has a church of 4,000 people. Plus they have... Because people in Africa, in these towns, they don't have cars. And you should have a church within walking distance. So he has planted a network of 26 churches all around the town. So the whole town is covered with a network of churches that are under him. And now Zomba is no longer a Muslim city. The majority of the people are Pentecostal. So he... uh because I was back in Zambia a couple of years ago and did a campaign there. And I saw that the majority of the population is are Pentecostal. It's no longer a Muslim town. So I tell people this is the best way to deal with Islam. So if the president could give me a couple of billion out of their war budget, I could maybe uh, do it a better way, you know. Anyway, the next picture is... Uh, um, this is, uh, you know, we, I, I, we have planted about 1,500 churches through our ministry. And I, I uh, right now I oversee, we have more than 350 churches in Africa that I oversee. So uh, one of the things you have to do, to do on a regular basis is bring the pastors in and teach them and all that. And, you know, we have a church planting school like a Bible school. We have an orphanage and we run all that. But it's very important to train the pastors so we... Uh, we train them, so this is one of the pastors' conferences we do. And is there any more picture? I don't think so. I think this is the last one. So, um, I just want you to see this. This is what I do for a living. This is my day job. We also have an orphanage. I I never wanted to have an orphanage. We have built an orphanage for other people to run, supported orphanages, but I ended up inheriting an orphanage uh, uh, with about 15 kids, so We, you know, you just have to take care of it because where I, uh, where my base is in Zimbabwe, 25% of all the children in the country are AIDS orphans. Uh, You know, the life expectancy in those African countries is 37 years. You see very few elderly people, when you go to places like Zimbabwe and Zambia, in fact, most of the people are young people in their teens. And so I said, we got to do something. So we have a street ministry that uh, helps these kids because they end up in sniffing glue and end up in prostitution and drugs and crime and they die early. So, uh, you know, get them safe, give them a, uh, you know, teach them skills so they can support themselves. One of the things we have done is we have helped pastors. Actually, uh, because, you know, you have pastors who have skills. So I remember the first one was a pastor. He said, he said to me, he said, Pastor Chris, I want to help, help these orphans. I uh, said, what do you want to do? He said, I'm a carpenter by trade. Uh, and, and I want to teach uh, them, you know, how to do carpentry. I said, okay, how much do you need? He said, $400. And, you know, $400. I had it in my wallet right away. I gave it to him. And, and this was about 10 years ago. And do you know how many kids he has saved off the streets who are now working as carpenters? Sometimes it takes so little. just takes a heart and a will to help people, you know. And so we got there. But then I thought, we've got to do something for these orphans also. So we, we are building a house for the orphans because they were living in mud huts in squalor. So we take care of them. And we have almost finished a beautiful house for them to live in. And it's, it's you know, this is what... Christianity is all about. It's about reaching people with the gospel. It's about helping people. Amen. So then, you know, we have a thousand acre farm and that also we inherited and it has its own airstrip. It has it. I mean, the, the guy who owned it before built an airstrip on it. I think he had a plane also. So I want to keep that airstrip because I tell people I'm the first faith preacher who has his own airport. I don't, I don't have, you have got these big shot preachers who have their planes, but nobody has his own airport. So I say, I have an airport. Of course, uh, nobody has landed on that strip for 25 years. And I don't think anybody wants to go there also, but at least I can say. And it's on, it's on Google Earth. If you go to Google Earth and you, you go to Kadoma, Zimbabwe, and you'll see an airstrip there. That's mine, you know. So... Praise God. Hallelujah. Well, let's go straight to the Word of God. Uh, Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. It says, For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure... Now, I I wanted to share something else. I actually wanted to share something totally different, but my pastor, Pastor Sam, sent uh, a text message to Pastor John and said, tell Christopher to preach this. And I obey my pastor. So I thought... I will, I will do what my pastor wants me to share with you this morning. Is that okay with you? Yeah. Okay. He says, For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. So here Paul talks about his background. What he's basically saying is that he was a Jew... And that he was, a, he was a, a zealous Jew, you know, because there are a lot of Jews who, who are Jews in name, but they're very, very secularized. They don't believe in anything. But Paul was not like that. He was a, he was a, he was a strong, uh, strong Jew, and he was a zealous Jew. And there were two things he writes. He says that, I persecuted the church of God. So when the Jews were persecuting the church, Paul was in the forefront of that persecution. He was persecuting the church. And then it says he was zealous the traditions of the father. And I'd just like to bring out a point here that uh, faith always looks forward. And you understand that. Religion always looks backwards. Faith is concerned with what God is going to do. Religion is more concerned about maintaining the traditions of the past. And this is the way we used to do it. And this is the way we will do it. And some things will never change. And this is the way it was when I got saved in the good old days. And this is the way it's going to be until I die, you know. And so Paul was zealous for the traditions of the Father. He was zealous for tradition. And then something happened. It says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. He said, then came a time. It says, it pleased God. You see, we are saved because it pleased God. And I am here. I, am, I was the most unlikely person to, to be seen in church. But I'm here because it pleased God. Amen. Amen. I'm here because it pleased God. Salvation was not man's idea. It was God's idea. We love him because he first loved us. Amen. Amen. Jesus died for us when we were sinners. You know, some people say, I found Jesus. He wasn't lost, we were lost. He found us. Amen? Amen. Jesus found us, we were lost. So, the whole thing is God's idea. It says, when it pleased God, then it says, who separated me from my mother's womb. That means that Paul lived his life with a sense of destiny. It's important to know and to understand that you are not just an accident. You didn't happen by accident, but you are with, here with a purpose. And God has a plan and purpose for your life. And, and, let, and let me just say this. I know people who ha, are seemingly very successful in life and have all the outward trappings of success. But they are still very unhappy and dissatisfied because of one reason. They have not really understood why God has created them. Amen. Amen. If God has blessed you, he has blessed you so that you can be a blessing to others. You know, I mean, there's a purpose with everything. If you have wealth, there's a purpose with it. If you have education, there's a purpose with it. Whatever God has bestowed you with in this life, there's a purpose with it. It's good to find out your purpose in God and run with it. Amen. And so it's good to live your life with a sense of destiny because it brings great satisfaction in knowing who you are and why God has put you on this earth. Yes. Hallelujah. Yes, sir. Let me tell you a little story which reminds me, you know, uh, I went through a lot of darkness in my life. And uh, until the age of 21, I never met a Christian. I never saw a Bible. And uh, I had never set foot in a church. I knew nothing about Christianity. But uh, I'm going to tell you more about that later, but about five years ago, it was Easter Sunday. Now, my mother left when I was eight years old, and uh, I have really, I mean, I know where she is, but I have no relationship with her, you know. She left when I was eight and decided to live her own life. So since then, I've met her just a few times. I'm not really close to her. But because she's my mother, I call her from time to time to see how she's doing. And five years ago, I remember it was Easter Sunday. It was night. My wife had gone to bed. So I decided to call my mama. So I called her. I said, Mama, how are you doing? She said, I'm fine. Uh, How are you? I said, I'm okay. She said, I have some sad news. And she told me about this wife. Uh, Mrs. Ashraf alam now we had the same last name, but we were not related. Her, this lady's, uh, she said, this uh, lady, Mrs. Alam, has just passed away. She died two weeks ago. Now, this lady she was talking about was the widow of my father's best friend, one of my father's best friends. Now, my father was an army general, but when he was a major, this gentleman was my father's colonel. He was his commanding officer. And they were very close. And people even assumed that they were brothers because we had the same last name, but we were not related. So I remember meeting the colonel when I was about uh, 13 years old. I remember meeting him then. That was the last time I saw him. And his wife, I had seen her when I was much smaller. And uh, I don't really remember much about her. But my mother was telling me, this lady has passed away. I said, Well I'm very sorry to hear that. Then my mother said, You know, she used to pray for you every day. And every time I would meet her, she would ask about you. She said, She died in a hospital about a mile away, mile and a half away, and we were very close. And right until the end, I was with her, I was holding her hand when she passed, and she right before the end, she she asked for you. I said, But mama, why should she ask for me? Ask for me. She hasn't seen me since I was a child. And my mother said, Because she was your godmother. Now, I didn't know I had a godmother, because Muslims don't have godmothers, you know. But I had to have a godmother. I said, oh, really? She said, yeah, she was your godmother. She said, in fact, when you were born in 1954, in those days when a woman was giving birth, they would not allow the father to be in the delivery room. But they would allow the mother's sister or her best friend to be announced. So she said, when you were born, Mrs. Alam was right next to me holding my hand. And when... when uh, Uh, When I gave birth, she said, I was almost unconscious, but the midwife handed you to her. And she was the first one who ever held you in her arms, and she was holding you. And then he says, Mrs. Alam used to wear a cross around her neck. And she took that cross off and put it on your forehead and began to pray for you and bless you. But I said, but Mama, why should she do that? We were Muslims. We were all Muslims. And she said, no, the colonel was a Muslim. But she was a Christian, and nobody really understood why she married this Muslim man, but she was a devout Christian right until the end. She read her Bible and talked about Jesus all the way to the end, and she was blessing you and praying for you. And then my mother said, then the door opened, and your father walked in, and she said, you know how your father was, when he saw what she was doing... Uh, he got very upset and he said Mrs. Alam you can't do that you are our friend you are my commanding officer's wife but we are Muslims and you cannot do this and uh, Mrs. Alam said to my father she said Major I know you're a Muslim and you're going to bring this boy up as a Muslim but I'm telling you today that Jesus is going to save this boy and God is going to bless him and so and so uh Then my mother said, that is why your father found it so difficult when you became a Christian and he persecuted you and tried to kill you because he knew that even until the end he had lost. So, you know, it was then I realized, you look back at your life and you see all the things you have been through in life and you begin to see the plan and the purpose of God. And I suddenly realized that, you know what? In spite of everything I've been through, I am living my destiny. This is why God put me on this earth. Do you understand what I'm saying? Paul lived his life with a sense of destiny. And you and I should live our lives with a sense of destiny. Well, that, then he says, then he says, and he called me by his grace. You see, God calls us by his grace. When God calls people to preach the gospel, he does not call them on the basis of their talents, on the basis of their merits. He calls them, not because they have been to, uh, to a Bible college and have a degree... You see, Bible colleges don't make men of God. God makes men of God. You know, you can call, go yourself and call yourself a preacher. As somebody said, some people are sent, some just went. But only Jesus sends people. Amen. And God calls people who he chooses. Not on the basis of their merit. So, then he says all this. You know, he called me. It pleased God. He saved me. And he called me from my mother's womb. And all that. And why? What's the purpose? Then he says, verse 16. To reveal his son in me. That I might preach him among the heathen. You see, the primary purpose of God's calling upon our life. Is not for us to preach the gospel. (coughs) But it is to give us. A revelation of the Son of God. That's the first thing God wants to give us. Is a revelation of Jesus. Because you see, you can only preach with life changing conviction the things that are a revelation to you. That's why I tell people, it's not enough. You cannot live your life listening to other people's CDs and, you know, going to conferences and getting hands laid on your head and getting Pentecostal massages, you know. You, you know, you need, you need more than that. You need a revelation of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen and living in you. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We need the revelation of Jesus. And when we have that revelation of Jesus, that is when we take this wonderful gospel out and we preach it to the heathen. Amen. So here Paul shares his story. And uh, today I want to share with you my story. And I call it, why I preach the gospel. Because... You know, I had my family asking me, why why are you doing this? Because I come from a very, you know, very high up, uh, you know, I come from an aristocratic family. My uh, grandfather was a prince, my father was a prince, so I come from a, I'm related to the royal family of Jordan, we are direct descendants of Muhammad, and they couldn't understand. You know, they just just couldn't understand why someone from our family, you know, my father was an army general. My mother was a member of parliament. Uh, I've got one cousin who did two PhDs from MIT and he lives, uh, I don't know, Worcester or someplace close by. He doesn't know I'm here. Well, anyway, but, but you know, I've got, I've got, I've got, I've got, you know, I come from a very classy, educated family. And they couldn't understand why I go to places like, you know, out in the bush in Africa and preaching the gospel. And, and I try to explain to them why this is God's calling on my life and I'm happier than any of you. <laughs> now, but here's the thing. I would categorize the reasons I preach the gospel into two different categories. The first category would be the biblical reasons I preach the gospel. And when it comes to the biblical reasons, it's things that apply to all of us. For example, one reason is because Jesus is the only way to God. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, I'm aware there are many religions, and there are good people in other religions. And people wonder, why can't a good Muslim go to heaven? Why can't a good Hindu go to heaven? I cannot answer those questions. But I do know this much, that Jesus himself said, these are not my words. These are not my assumptions. These are his words. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So he closed the door to any speculation as to, well, can a good Buddhist be saved? No, he can't. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So what do we do about those people who don't know Jesus? Well, the answer is simple. We preach the gospel to them. And people ask me sometimes, what, what, what happens to those people? I said, if your concern for those people is so great, I would advise you to drop everything and join my team and help me. Yeah. So, you know, that's the first reason. The second reason, there is something in the Bible called the Great Commission. Now, it's not the Great Suggestion. Is the great commission. It's a commandment in which Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That was his last commandment he gave before he ascended to heaven. So we have a commandment to preach the gospel. I preach the gospel because of the commandment. There are a lot of things where I ask God. You know, there are times I fasted and prayed and asked God. There are times I have not fasted, but I've just gone aside. I said, Father, show me. But there's one thing I never ask God. Should I preach the gospel to sinners or not? You know why? Because it is already in the book. You see, if something is already in the book, we don't have to ask God about it. We just have to do it. Like Nike says, just do it. (laughs) Amen? Amen. Now, Now, these are the biblical reasons why I preach the gospel. Now, let's get to some personal reasons. My first personal reason why I preach the gospel is I preach the gospel because of what Jesus has done for me. All of us have a story to tell and I want to share with you a little bit of where I'm coming from. I was born in a Muslim home. As I said, I knew nothing about Christianity, never met a Christian, never seen a Bible in my life, never set foot in a church. When my mother left, I was only eight. My father married another woman who was very abusive. She used to physically beat me up. I remember from the age of eight until the age of 13, Remember, I remember receiving severe beatings, if not every day, almost every day. I had bruises and cuts in my body that never healed, that bled All the time, because of the beatings I used to get. It was very intense. So, But, you know, by the time I was 12, 13, I felt I had lost my childhood. And I just wanted out of that house, but I didn't know where to go and how to get away. One day I read in the newspaper... Now, by the way, my family is from Jordan, but I grew up in Pakistan, so that's where I was living. And um, one day I read in the newspaper that the Air Force was looking for kids my age... And they would take them in into a special college, give them an education, give them military training, groom them. And by the time they were 17, they'd start basic flying training. Then they'd become fighter pilots in the Air Force. So uh, about 10,000 kids applied, but there were only about 30 places. So I came in as about, uh, I think, number 26 or 27, you know, right at the bottom of the list. My name was there. And, and uh, my, my reason for joining was not so much that I wanted to serve my country. I just wanted to get away from that home. Now, when I was there, uh, this is what happened. I was still not happy. I was, I was far away from my parents, and I was in this home. And You know, I had left that home. I was, in the, I was a cadet in the Air Force, but I still was not happy. And I couldn't understand why. Now I look back, I understand why, because you see... I found out that once that root of rejection and bitterness gets a hold of you, you know, it's going to torment you. doesn't matter how far you get away from your tormentors or even long after they're dead. Is going to continue to plague you because now it's a part of your psyche. It's a part of your soul. It becomes a part of you. And it's going to, it's going to torment you as long as you live. In fact, it will dictate to you how you relate to other people. How you interpret other people's words and actions. You know, the, that rejection. The, uh, the, re- the uh, you know, that, uh, rejection will be the paradigm through which you look at everything. And that's what I had become. And so... By the time I was 15, I was suicidal. I seriously contemplated killing myself and ending it all because I couldn't live with this torment. But the only thing that kept me from killing myself was because Islam teaches that, cardinal is, uh, that suicide is a cardinal sin. That if you commit suicide, you will go straight to hell and there's no mitigating factors. You know, I believe the Roman Catholic Church also teaches that. You know, we don't believe that because we believe God is a good God. And sometimes people, you know, Brother Hagen said, like people can be sick in their body, they can get sick in their head. And they can end up doing things that are, uh, that are wrong. But, you know, if they love Jesus, they are still saved. We don't understand a lot of things. But Islam is very categorical. If you kill yourself, you go to hell. So I was afraid because I knew, I knew through all this that there was a God. And I knew there was an eternity. I knew there was a heaven and a hell. And I knew that I was a sinner. And if I died, I would go to hell. And I did not want to spend eternity in hell. I was that afraid. So anyway, a couple more years passed. When I was 17, the country went to war. I remember a few months before the war when there was trouble at the borders. And we knew there'd be war. The president came on the radio. He says, we shall soon be at war. And this is jihad. Now... Jihad in Arabic means holy war. And Islam teaches that if you get killed in a jihad, you go straight to heaven. Even if you have lived a sinful life. So I said, this is my way out of this life. I'm going to die. Now you can imagine. A 17 year old kid. When you're 17, you're thinking of college, you're thinking of your future. And I'm thinking of death. Because... I had nothing to live for. So I took a month in which I prayed, I fasted, basically cleansing myself, purifying myself, and then the war started. Now, of course, I had done some basic flying training. I was not by any means a trained fighter pilot, so I volunteered for ground operation. And, uh, and you know, I did everything to put myself in the line of fire because I just wanted to die. I had nothing to live for. But the sad thing was, A lot of other young people died who had everything to live for. They had families that loved them. And so when the war ended, uh, nothing seemed to make sense to me. I couldn't understand that how can there be a God who's so disinterested in man... That he can allow man uh, to to, uh, uh, to commit such atrocities on one another. Because I saw horrible things. You know, I just couldn't understand that. And that here were men, young men, because in war young people died. These were, these were all kids in the prime of their youth. Uh, good, bright kids. And they died. And they had everything to live for. And I, whose life was worth nothing, I wanted to die and I was still alive. So, I, I, I was kind of, uh, after that, I was kind of an agnostic. I knew, I couldn't be 100% sure whether there was a God or not. And I concluded that, well, even if there is a God, he probably doesn't care for us. Then when I was 18, a few months, I turned 18, then I went to war again. By this time, I was commissioned as an Army officer. I left the Air Force. I joined the Army. uh, And uh, we saw horrible things there also. And uh, then I left the Army. Uh, I tried to go into civilian life. I went back into the Army. I didn't really fit in anywhere. Then 1975, the Army offered me a regular commission. They wanted me going for 23 years minimum. They wanted me... And I got that letter and uh, I really wanted to join. Everybody wanted to join. But sometimes something inside me said to me, don't join. Don't join. Don't sign up. So I turned it down and everyone thought I was a fool because that was the the military was the only life I knew. And then what happened a few months later, I was on the street. And uh, I was walking down the street and right across the street I saw I saw a man, a tall man, he was about over six feet tall, he was handing out tracts to people. And I remember looking at him and thinking, because you know, this was the 70s and people used to take drugs, everybody was high on something. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking two things, this man has something I don't have. He has a peace and a joy that I have never had. I need to find out what it is. The second thought was, I wonder what he is smoking. You know, I wonder, you know. So I crossed the street, and I looked at this man, and he had this serenity and this peace about him, and he was so happy, and I was asking him, I said, who are you, sir, and what are you doing? He says, I'm from England. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and traveling around the world telling people about Jesus. And he began to talk about Jesus. And let me tell you something. i had never even seen a Bible at that time. I knew nothing about Jesus. But, but when, he, when he began to talk, something got me. You know, something. There's some things you can't explain. You know, now there's a difference between Easterners and Westerner. I'm an Easterner. Easterners, we, we, we go, we follow our heart. Westerners, we follow our mind. That's a big difference. Now, I'm not saying one is right, the other is wrong. Both have their place. But I just sense this is it. This is what I've been waiting for my whole life. I can't explain why I had never even seen a Bible in my life. I knew nothing. So I opened my heart. He said, do you want to receive Jesus? I said, yes, I do right now. But I I remember when I prayed the prayer with him and I opened my eyes, there were two things that I felt. I felt like a huge burden had been lifted on my chest. That was the first thing. The second thing I felt like until that point, my whole life had been like in grayscale, you know, black and white with shades of gray. Suddenly everything was now in technicolor. You know, that's... That's how I felt. And I was so happy. I, I mean, everything about me changed. Well, people, my friends saw me what was happening to me. And the next thing I knew, I was in an army mental hospital for evaluation. And <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was in a military mental hospital. And there I began to preach the gospel. I began to share Christ with everybody. And then one of the staff members gave his life to Jesus. Then the psychiatrist, he called me in because I outranked him. I was a major. He was a captain. He said, sir, there's nothing wrong with you and you're just causing problems here. So I will discharge you, release you, let you go. (laughs) So he released me. And then I was under house arrest for some time. And then I escaped and I started preaching on the streets and I was arrested. And then I was in prison for almost a year. I was tortured when I was in prison. And they told me, you will either come out of here in a casket, in a coffin, or you'll come out of here if you give your life back to Islam. And you become a Muslim again. And I refused, but after a year I came out. Then I came out, then I was arrested again for keeping a Bible. And then they said, you're going to be killed, because that's the only recourse we have to deal with apostates, you know, people who live Islam. So we're going to kill you. So I escaped from the country I went to Afghanistan, Soviet Union, Turkey, Belgium, and I ended up in Sweden. And, uh, and uh, there I met my wife in church. We got married. I got baptized with the Holy Spirit. I went to Rema. Uh I was there. I found out I was in first year when Pastor John was in second year. And, but we never met. And I, I came back uh, to Sweden. We lived in Sweden for about 20 years. And started preaching from that point. And I look back at my life today. And I say, the reason I'm standing here is there's only one reason. And that is because God is a good God. You know. So, that's the first reason I preach the gospel. is because of what Jesus has done for me. That's the first reason. Now, the second reason I preach the gospel is because of what I've seen Jesus do in the lives of other people. Let me tell you a couple of stories. I'm thinking of the township of Chaisa in Zambia. And I remember, you know, we have a huge PS system. When I'm preaching, you can hear me a uh, couple of miles away. And the reason I have a big PA system is that I want everyone to hear the gospel whether they like to or not. I say, you don't come to my crusade? Fine, I'll come to your house. <laughs> You know, so uh, about a mile away from the field where I was preaching, there was a family and this family had two children, this couple. There was a little boy who was nine years old and his older sister, 11. Now the little boy, he had contracted spinal meningitis that had left him totally paralyzed. And so the family, for some reason, the parents were, you know, very angry at Christians, at God, at churches. They want to have nothing to do with... Christianity. So every evening, they would leave the children at home. They would tell the sister, look after your little brother. And mom and I are going out. And they'd go to a local bar and drink, spend the evening drinking beer with their friends. Then they'd come back. So that evening, you know, I started preaching on Tuesday night. And uh, uh, on when it was Thursday night. Now, Tuesday night when I was preaching, the parents went out to the bar. And the, the boy, the little paralyzed boy, he was laying in his bed. And through the open window, he could hear me preach over a mile away. And he listened to me on Wednesday night. Then on Thursday night, after the parents leave, he says to his sister, he says, could you please carry me on your back to where this man is? Because I believe his Jesus is going to heal me. And the sister said, you know, mom and dad will be very angry and, because they don't like preachers and they don't like Christians and And the brother said, I know I asked them, and they got very angry, but now they're gone. Could you please carry me there? And the sister said, yeah, but you are so big. You're almost my size, and I can't carry you. And he began to cry. He says, please, this is my only chance. Please take me there. I really believe his Jesus will heal me. And then she began to cry. She saw her brother crying. She began to cry. She said, no, but it's difficult. You're heavy and it's far. I know this field is right next to my school. And it's a long walk and I can't carry you. And he says, look, this is my only chance. I don't want to end up as a beggar on the streets when I grow up. And he says, I know his Jesus will heal me. In fact, I promise you, you just have to carry me one way. I'm going to walk back. And, uh, and so the... The sister, when she saw her brother crying like that, she, she says, okay, I will try. So she picked him up on her back. That's how uh, African women carry their children. So she picked her brother piggyback, and she stepped outside the house. Now, you got to understand in those poor townships in Africa, uh, when you step out, it's pitch dark. Firstly, because there's no street lights. It's totally dark. Secondly, the roads are not paved. It's all, you know, the, it's, it's stones, and it's sharp stones, and it's all... Uh, it's very rough. And, and there are brothers here and sisters here from Africa. You know what I'm talking about. And so when she stepped out, and it was totally dark. And she began to walk. And she had walked a few feet. Then she stepped in a hole or something and she fell down. And, you know, there's sharp stones on the ground. And she cut herself and he cut himself. And, and they were both crying. And she says, no, I can't carry you and she, he begged her and so she picked him up again and she walked again and I mean I don't know how many times they fell on the way but I saw them that evening when they reached that field they were cut. I mean, they were cut in the head, on their faces. The, all the skin was gone from their arms, their elbows, their knees, their shins. And uh, they were covered with dirt and they were covered with blood, basically, both of them. Because they had fallen so many times, it was very painful. And, but each time she had gotten up, picked her brother up and come to the field. And that night, Jesus honored that little boy's faith. And that little boy began to walk. And then he lined up uh, to testify, and he came on the platform. And he came on the platform, and I saw him covered with dirt, and he told me his story. I said, who brought you here? He said, my sister. I said, bring your sister. Then the sister came, and she was slightly bigger than him. I said, how far did you carry him? She says, I live more than one and a half kilometers away. And I came, and I said, what happened? She said, we fell so many times, and she was crying. Because through the dirt, you could see the stains of her tears. And uh, they walked back home, and they were in the kitchen. And when mom and dad came home, they understood what had happened. And they fell on the floor, and they began to cry. Next day, the whole family came. The whole family came. And uh, along with their extended family, their relatives, their neighbors, they all came. And uh, the whole group of them got saved. And, you know, I got my team together. I said, look, you know, each crusade, we do like six services. We do ten crusades a year. And you saw the pictures. I said, we are so used from looking at people from the platform. And all we see is a mass of humanity. I said, but sometimes God allows us to uh, see these people up close, one on one. And that's when we realize that these masses are composed of, of individuals who Jesus loves, and who Jesus died for. And I said, I don't know how many people were here tonight. There were maybe 60,000, 70,000 people in the crowd. But I said, you know, each crusade cost us $25,000. But I said, but you know what? If we spent all that money, came all the way to Zambia, just for this one little kid, it would be worth it. Because, you know, even if a little sparrow falls to the ground, the father knows it. I said, these people are precious to God. Let us never forget that. Just because we go to... You know, sometimes we value the lives of the rich more than the lives of the poor. We go to, we go to poor townships in Africa where people are struggling to survive, live from day to day, and, and we just brush them aside. But when there's one rich man in America, you know, who is sick, we make a big deal out of it. I said, you know, Jesus loves those people. The value of these people... It's not on, the, on their financial status or how much they can produce or what the color of their skin is. It is on the fact that Jesus died for them. Jesus died on the cross for them. And I, I, often, think, I often think of that man and I think of him and I think that is why I preach the gospel. And I, and I have so many memories. I remember this. I was in Tanzania in Iringa and there was this Maasai tribesman. He was like almost seven feet tall, skinny, lanky, and he had one eye and, 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 and the other was an empty socket. And then I said, wherever your, you know, your sickness is, put your hand. He put his hand on that empty socket. And when I finished praying, he took his hand off and there was an eye there. And you know, you think of it. You think of, You think of the wonders of God. And uh, I've stood before the Victoria Falls and seen that water come down. I remember first time I stood in front of the Victoria Falls and I looked at those waters coming down. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. It was long before I even saw the Niagara Falls, which is nothing compared to the Vic Falls. But I stood before the Vic Falls and I saw all that water coming down. And then I remembered that scripture when Jesus said, out of your belly... Shall rivers of living water come forth? And I remember I stood there. I began to shout. I said, Jesus, let it be like this through me. Let it be like this through me. And I suddenly realized, you know, even more than that, the wonders of God when he touches the life of a little child. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We serve a God of miracles. God touches the lives of other people. Can I tell you one more story? I just need five more minutes. Years ago, 1981, before I went to Reymah, there was a knock on our door. My wife and I lived in a small apartment. And I opened the door and there was a Swedish girl. I don't know her name. I've never seen her since. Never seen her before. She was standing next to an Arab guy. She says, are you Brother Christopher? I said, yes. She said, this is... uh, Yusuf, Yusuf is Arabic for Joseph. This is Yusuf. He's from Algeria. Please tell him about Jesus. She pushed him to the door, closed the door and disappeared. <laughs> so here I'm standing with this Arab guy. I said, please come in. And you know, in Arab culture, we offer hospitality. I said, would you like some coffee? Yes, please. So you want to hear about Jesus? I said. He looked at his watch. He said, well, I got some time. Tell me so I knew he was not very interested he was trying to be polite so I took a new testament out I didn't know what to say to him I began to read and then I began to share with him and then I said I said look you let's do this Why don't you take this new testament begin to read it I again the gospel of John I said start reading from here I said everything you wonder about underline it come back tomorrow and I'll try to answer your questions he said that's good so he came back the next day there was a whole bunch of things he had underlined, and I explained those to him. Then I said, we, you can go back and underline more things. So we did this for two weeks. Two weeks, he goes back every day. And then he said, he says, that's it. No more question answers. I want to receive Jesus. I said, are you sure? He says, well, he said, just reading this book is changing me. He says, there's things happening inside of me I can't even describe to you. I said, like what? He said, like I used to go to the pub and get drunk with my friends. I don't do that anymore. I said, this book won't let me. <laughs> Reading this. I said, he said, I just, I just feel so terrible doing those things. I said, okay, great. So he received Jesus. Then I began to disciple him. And I baptized him in water. He was very eager to learn. He wanted to know everything. I remember when he came out of the water, he was shouting in tongues. So I said, oh, there's one less thing to explain to him. Because, <laughs> you know, in Sweden, it's like America. Sometimes getting people baptized with the Holy Spirit is like a dentist pulling teeth, you know. And so he was speaking in tongues. I said, great. So I'm teaching him. Then I get my acceptance letter from the U.S., from Reema. So I said to Yusuf, I said, listen... My wife and I are leaving next month to go to Bible school in America. He began to cry. He says, who will help me? Who will teach me? Because at that time, we didn't have any good churches in Sweden. They were churches, but they were all religious. So I said, I tell you what, I have friends in England. I'll send them to you. I'll I'll send you to them, and they will teach you. So we sent him to England. I went to Rehma, came back from and Then I lost touch with Yusuf. I mean... I had heard through the grapevine that he had married a Chinese girl from Malaysia and he was back in Algeria. Then I heard that there was civil war in Algeria. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed in fighting between Al-Qaeda and the government. I mean, it was bad. And then I didn't hear about him for 25 years, you can say. And I had no idea where he was. In fact, I forgot all about him. Well, a couple of years back, I was back in Sweden. We go back there twice a year and... I was back and I met this old missionary who used to, I used to be with an organization known as Operation Mobilization. And he was their main guy in the Middle East. He was a Swedish guy, but he spoke perfect Arabic. So I met with him, took him and his wife out to lunch. They were retired now. They were almost 70. So I said, Brother Battil, what are you doing these days? How is the retired life? He said, well, not really. I'm kind of semi-retired. I go to the Middle East every month to preach, to teach. I said, where are you going next? He said, I'm going to Algeria next week. I said, Algeria, isn't there a civil war there? He said, no, no, the civil war has stopped. There's a revival there. I said, really? Tell me about it. He said, man, it's like the book of Acts. Dead people are being raised up. Lame people are walking. I mean, he says, there are tens of thousands of Muslims who are born again, filled with the Holy Spirit. I said, really? He said, the movement I visit... They have 50,000 born-again spiritual Muslims. He said, by the way, the main guy there, the guy who leads it, he talks about you all the time. I said, I said, I don't know anyone in Algeria. He said, no, but he says, there was a man called Christopher Allah. I got saved in his living room. I said, really? Who is he? He says, his name is Yusuf. And the, suddenly the lights went on. I said... Yusuf, you mean the tall guy? Does he have a Chinese wife from Malaysia? He said, yeah, that's him. He says, man, he talks about you all the time and you're a spiritual father. And so I said, wow. You know, I, I, I didn't know of all this. So the next year, next summer, I was back in Sweden. I was preaching. Uh, there was a big conference. They invited me. So I'm preaching there. And guess who's sitting in the front row? <laughs> it's Yusuf. I hadn't seen him and his hair was kind of gray and, you know, he was, he used to be skinny. He's a little bit more blessed than like me, you know. <laughs> so I said, so I said, I said, is that you, Yusuf?" He said, yes. I said, come here, man. And I hugged him and we both began to cry. And then I suddenly realized, you know, here's a young man who I led to the Lord, but his ministry has far surpassed me in any way. You know, I led him to the Lord, I taught him, and now he's doing far greater things than I will ever do. And you think of it, I preach the gospel because of people like that little boy. I preach the gospel because of people like Yusuf. You see, I preach the gospel because of what Jesus has done for me. But I preach the gospel because of what Jesus has done in the lives of others. The final reason, the third reason I preach the gospel, I preach the gospel... Because of a man called Jim Turner. And let me tell you who he is. When I got saved, I was in prison, came out of prison. I started going to a church. And it was a good church. The pastor was an Australian missionary. I used to sit in the front. I was so eager. He used to preach good. He was very nice. Then one Wednesday night, he says, brother, can you sit in the back next Sunday? And I said, why, pastor? He said, we are going to take communion, and I don't want you to take communion. I said, why? He said, well, in our denomination, uh, we have a rule that only if you're water baptized can you take communion. And you're not water baptized. And I said, but, pastor, communion is the body and the blood of Christ. I really believe that. I don't take it lightly. He said, I know, I know. I would love to give you communion, but I can't. Because you're not baptized. So I said, Pastor, why don't you baptize me? He says, "Uh, no, I can't. I said, is there anybody else? He says, no, nobody else will baptize you. I said, why? He said, let me explain to you. He said, in a Muslim country, when a Muslim becomes a Christian, there's persecution. Like they will try to kill you, put you into prison and all that. But you see, when a Muslim gets saved and he gets water baptized, Muslims view water baptism as the final break that this person... ...is now going, he's gone, and he is not coming back. Water baptism is the point of no return. This person is totally committed to Jesus and he's going to come back. Then what will happen, they will kill you, they will kill the pastor who baptizes you. Then they will persecute the church of that pastor. They will burn the church, they will kill believers from that church... And they will burn the church down. He says, there have been some incidents in which Muslim converts have been killed. Pastors have been killed. Churches have been persecuted. So we want to, you know, to... Uh, we, we, we don't want these things to happen and innocent people to leave, lose their homes and lose their property and get killed. He said, because of that, we have decided we will not baptize Muslim converts. So I was looking for someone to baptize me because it was very difficult for me to sit in church... Everybody else took communion while I couldn't. So what happened, then I met Pastor Jim Turner. He was an American Southern Baptist missionary. And he said to me, he says, Brother, I heard you want to be baptized. I said, Yes, sir. He said, Well, I'm going to baptize you. I said, "Uh, No, Pastor, it can be very difficult. In fact, they can kill you. And uh, you're American and there'll be an international incident. And he says, Look, He says, I've been watching you and I know that the hand of God is on your life. And I don't want anything to stop you from fully partaking of what the Lord has for you. If taking communion means so much to you, I will baptize you. So he took me to the Arabian Sea and he baptized me. And a few weeks later, I had to escape and I ended up in Sweden. And five months later, when I was in Sweden, I got a letter from another American missionary telling me that Pastor Jim Turner had been killed by the fundamentalists, and they had found his body upon the mountains. You know, uh, you can't even imagine what I went through. It was the uh, most difficult thing that uh, a man, a minister of the gospel, with a wife and three children would give his life so that an Arab boy could take communion. Even today, when I take communion, I think of Pastor Jim Turner. What it cost him. So I can take communion. It goes further than that. Every time I preach the gospel, every time I do an altar call, you know, it feels like I'm trying to pay off a debt that I know that I can never repay in full. That's how it feels for me. People who I know in the ministry, I have friends who went to Rama with me who gave up because they got discouraged, many of them. I don't even have the luxury of entertaining the thought of giving up when things have been tough. Because what it cost him. Because it has cost me something. But it cost that man everything. When you look at the price that was paid. And that I can stand here before you because of that price. I must go on. Fulfill both my calling. And fulfill, in a way, his unfinished calling. And I know... I've lived that way since 1977. For more than 35, 36 years, I preached the gospel with this burden over my head. And I know even when I die and go to heaven, stand before Jesus, that'll be one thing that'll be unpaid. That's why so I preach the gospel because I'm Jim Turner and I can never get away from under that debt. Now, let me just say this. Most of you will say, well, I cannot really relate to that because I never had anything like that happen to to me. But it did. There was someone who died for you. There was someone who was whipped, who was beaten. They cursed him, then mocked him. And covered with blood. Covered with the spit of sinners. Covered with dirt. He carried that cross to Calvary. Where they crucified him. So that you and I can take communion. So that you and I can sit here this morning and worship God. So that you and I can have this assurance and say when this life is over I'm going to go be with Jesus. So my challenge to you would be. How are you going to live your life? Are you going to continue your life as you have done so far? Or are you going to live your life in a manner which is worthy of the price that was paid for you? I'm saying this because there's people who live in the periphery of things. See them on Sunday. But they cannot be counted on Monday to Saturday. Others who give their 10% and the thing that's it, that's all God wants. So are you going to live your life in a manner that is worthy of the price that Jesus paid for you and me so that you and I can be saved? Let's bow our heads together. while well, your heads about. I just want to ask one question I want you to ask yourself this one thing if I was to die am I going to heaven or to hell where do I stand in my life I know most of you this is church time Sunday morning most of you will say brother Christopher I know I'm saved I love Jesus but if there's anybody here you need to get right with God you need to make things right with God. This is your opportunity. If there's any gray area in your life and you don't know, but you want to do business with God, let me see your hand right now. Wherever you are, I will really want to pray with you more than anything else this morning. Anybody, anybody here? You say, Brother Christopher, I need to get right with God. Anybody, just show me a hand high enough so I know who you are. God bless you, sir. God bless you. Anybody else? It takes a lot of courage. God bless you there, ma'am. Anybody else? God bless you. Anybody else? This is your opportunity. God bless you, sir. Anybody else? Thank you, Lord Jesus. God bless you, sir. Anybody else? Need to get right with God. Anybody else? There's the opportunity. Now, those of you, I don't want any hand clapping or anything, but those of you, put your hand up. Could you kindly stand to your feet right now? Just right now. Just stand up, please. You put your hand up right where you are. Please stand up to your feet, sir. Now, those of you who are standing, could you come and join me in the front right now? I don't want to make a spectacle of you. But I remember Jesus, how he carried that cross, walked through the streets of Jerusalem for us. Please stand right here. How he walked through the streets of Jerusalem for you and for me, carrying that cross. So I'm asking you to take a few steps. and Stand with me. God bless you, sir. The right thing. God bless you, sir. It takes a lot of courage to stand up before people. It does. God bless you, sir. Anybody else? If you're looking at these people and something in your heart is saying, I shouldn't be sitting on my chair, but I should be standing with these people, then this is your opportunity to you come right here. Anybody else? So I want to make sure. Pastor John, would you come and stand with me? Okay. Anybody else needs to be in the front? Please come and stand with me. Just step forward, please. God bless you, sir. Takes a lot of guts, brother. I know. Takes a lot of guts to do that. That's why the Bible says the cowards shall not enter into the kingdom of God. Because cowards are too concerned about what other people think. You know, when it comes to eternity, eternity, it doesn't matter what other people think because nobody else is going to answer for you. Nobody else. Anybody else? You say, Pastor Chris, I need to be... I need to go to the front. You can come. Okay, let's do this. Why don't you give me your hand? Just hold my hand. Hold my hand. Hold my hand. Just... And say after me, say, Lord Jesus, I come to you this morning. I thank you that you died for me. You took my sins, my diseases, my infirmities upon your own self. Jesus, you are calling me this morning and I respond to you. I come to you. I give my life to you. Holding nothing back. I ask you to come into my heart and live in me. Today, I declare that you are my Lord. You are my master. You are my God. I will follow you and I will serve no other but you. Touch me and bless me in Jesus' name. Please put your hands upon them.